Hi there, you're listening to the Cary Church Podcast. We at Cary seek to be flourishing communities of hope, transformed by God's love, following Jesus and serving in God's world. To find out more on how to connect with us, go to cary.asn.au. Hey, um, my name's Mark. I serve as the pastor here. I haven't met you before and it's great to have you here with us this morning. I'm looking forward to the next couple of weeks, having lunch next week and then I'm really looking forward to going fishing the following week. Uh, some exciting uh, stuff coming up over the next couple of weeks. Last week we continued our conversation on the church and just thinking about the question of who are we? Who are we as the church? And we looked at Acts chapter 2 verses 42 to 47. And John Stott refers to that passage of Scripture as God's vision for his church. God's vision for his church. And there are four marks of the church in in the book of Acts, in in those uh, seven verses. And they're they're things that are central to who the church is. They're central to who we are. Uh, They're pillars that we build the church on, in a sense. And last week, we looked at the first mark. And the first mark of a living church is to be a learning church, to be a learning church. Today we're going to look at the second mark. And the second mark of a living church is to be a worshipping church, a worshipping church. The NIV's translation of verse 42 in Acts chapter 2 says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And verse 46 also refers to them breaking bread. Some interpreters suggest that the breaking of bread here Um, refers to the Lord's Supper, the communion or Eucharist, whatever tradition you're from. But other interpreters say, no, no, no. What the breaking of bread is referring to there is they had meals together in one another's homes. So people came over and had KFC and we hung out with one another. So they're the two approaches that that get taken. But then there's, there's the old El Paso approach, The old El Paso approach is simply this. Has anybody ever seen the ad um, for tacos? And um, there's these two guys arguing over whether the traditional corn chip crunchy um, taco shells are better or whether the the flat roll them up uh, tortillas are better. And they're having this passionate argument and um, a little girl pipes up and says, why don't we have both? Has anybody ever seen that ad? Just incidentally, as a matter of interest, I feel this is almost like a pineapple on pizza. But do people have a preference for the flat round bread tortillas? Or or who who goes for the traditional corn? I'd say we have it, corn people. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. We're in a spirit-filled church. Hey, um... So the New Living Translation actually uh, provides for both. They they actually say it's um, gathering for meals in people's homes and also the Lord's Supper or communion. So the New Living Translation translates verse 42 as sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper. And in verse 46, it reads the Lord's Supper and shared meals. And I think this is a good approach because the New Testament teaches both. It teaches that people gathered in other people's houses, in one another's houses for meals, but also that they, they got together and celebrated the Lord's Supper, communion. The part we're primarily concerned about this morning is, is the Lord's Supper part because um, 
That's the, that's the part that speaks about what their worship looked like. The fact that they gathered together regularly um, in one another's homes and they shared in this corporate worship. They gathered around this meal, the Lord's Supper, and they gave thanks for what Jesus has done on the cross. They celebrated what Jesus had done for them. Verse 42 also tells us that they devoted themselves to prayer together. Some translations used devoted to the prayers, devoted to the prayers, because there were some prayers that they actually prayed every day. So the Lord's Prayer, for example, was a prayer that they would pray every day um, because they, they recognised that this was a special prayer. This is how Jesus himself taught us how to pray, so they followed Jesus' steps. But the key thing to note for us is that they recognised the importance of coming together regularly and praying corporately because they recognised that if we neglect coming together and praying together, we're, we're neglecting the engine room. We're neglecting the engine room because without prayer, all of the other stuff doesn't really hang together. The gathering for fellowship, meeting in one another's homes, being a learning church, none of that stuff really hangs together quite as well if we're not a praying church. And we also run the risk of trying to do all of those other things in our own strength rather than through God's empowering in us. Acts also tells us in verse 46 that every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. The temple was a really spacious place and, and outside they had big colonnades, maybe a little bit like this area out here with big pillars and, and you could meet under, that was like a meeting place that people came together for corporate worship. And they also had times of public prayer, so morning and evening they, they would meet at the temple for corporate times of prayer. So I guess the church's worship had more formal times where they'd come together at the temple for teaching, for learning, for, for prayer in the mornings and the evenings. But they also had these more informal gatherings where they met in one another's homes. So the early church met to share the Lord's Supper, to pray together, and they met in the temple, they met in people's homes. I guess for us, our Sunday morning gathering like this is, is perhaps a little bit more formal. There's a little bit more structure to, to gathering in this sort of setting. But we recognise that we need, to, we need something a bit more than that. Su Sunday is not quite enough to, to get us through the week. And so gathering in people's homes is also important. There are a couple of other really important standouts in this passage that I just want us to work through this morning. The first is in verse 46. And it says that they did these things with glad and sincere hearts. That's how the NIV translates it. They did it with glad and sincere hearts. But again, I like the, I like the emotive language that the, the New Living Translation uh, uses because it says they worshipped with great joy. They worshipped with great joy. And the, the underlying word here means to show an exuberant expression of joy. You see, God had sent his son in, into the world and he had just sent the Spirit. The Spirit fell on the church on the day of Pentecost. So what, how, how could these guys not be joyful? They had lots to be joyful about, lots to celebrate. I can almost picture the Apostle Peter. He was this guy that was exuberant about everything that he did. He was passionate. He was energetic. I could just imagine the Apostle Peter filled with passion, with great joy, worshipping with exuberant joy. Ellis, I'm going to have to share your story from this morning. So the guys were up here um, practicing before the service this morning, 
And um, Ellis, the guy, if you don't know, Ellis was playing the guitar. And at the end of the practice, he started rolling around on the floor and getting a bit of feedback in the, you know, the way, uh, I don't know, ACDC or whatever, I don't know. They kind of roll around on the floor doing the, the riff. And, and I said, Ellis, that is a perfect example of somebody worshipping with exuberant joy. Now, I'm, suge- I'm not suggesting to anybody that we fall on the floor and roll around and do guitar riffs and air guitar, but, but that joyfulness, that same joyfulness that they had in the early church, that's something that we can have today. We've got the same Jesus living within us, do we not? We have the same spirit that fell on the church on the day of Pentecost living within us. So we've got so much to be joyful about. We've got so much to be thankful for. There's an there's a, um, archbishop by the name of Geoffrey Fisher, and he said this before he died, the longer I live, the more convinced I am that Christianity is one long shout of joy. I love that. I love that. We're called to be joyful, exuberant worshippers. The second standout is in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. And we read there that they devoted themselves to the Lord's Supper and to prayer. Or put another way, they devoted themselves to worship. Last week we spoke about the early church and we looked at devotion from a particular angle so the fact that they were at they they gathered together every day it was an expression of the fact that the early church were committed they were in boots and all they were in boots and all for this thing called the church because they were passionately in love with Jesus I want us today to think about devotion from a bit of a different perspective I want us to I want us to ask ourselves the question this morning, who is my first love? Who is my first love? Now, I am devoted to my wife, Heather, because I love her deeply and I am committed to life with her and that flows out of my love that I have for her. And out of my love for her flows devotion and I do things for her, not because she coerces me or she makes me, not all of the time, but I, it's this kind of natural thing. I love my wife, and I don't do this every morning, but some mornings I think Heather loves a ch- she loves um, chai lattes. I love taking a chai latte or a cup of tea in and putting it on the bedside for Heather, and she just has this look of appreciation. I do that not because I have to, but because I love her. I'm devoted to her. In some ways, it's similar for the early church. The disciples, they had done life with Jesus for three years. Jesus invited them, come and follow me, guys, come and follow me. And they followed Jesus for three years. They loved Jesus passionately. The people that were a part of the early church, that the Holy Spirit fell upon on the day of Pentecost, encountered Jesus through the person and work of the Holy Spirit in them. They'd met with Jesus, as it were. They were filled with God's Spirit and they loved Jesus. They loved Jesus. They loved Jesus. And their devotion to him flowed out of the fact that they love him. Jesus had their hearts. Jesus had their hearts. He was their first love. Now, the Bible has lots and lots to say about worship. And the the track that I'm about to go down, that we're about to go down, was not what I had in mind a couple of months ago when I sort of felt that this was something I should be speaking on. 
But the Bible has lots and lots to say about a whole raft of different things in relation to worship. But it talks a lot about idols. The Bible talks a lot about worship and idols and the relationship there. Idol worship was something that was prevalent throughout the Old Testament. And it started with Adam and Eve. They looked to try and find life in something, in someone other than God. They wanted autonomy. They wanted knowledge. They wanted independence. So they turned away from God. It was a form of idolatry. The nation of Israel, they were constantly distracted by idols. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of passages where God is telling them, get rid of those things, tear those things down, burn those things. They were constantly drawn to the, to the gods of the nations, especially to the god Baal and to the Ashtoreth Constantly struggle with those things. And we get to the, the New Testament and it comes up again. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, people are asking really practical questions like, hey, this food that we're going to eat, it's actually been offered to idols. Should we actually eat that food? They still struggle with this fact that there were, there were hundreds of gods that you could choose from in, in, in that world. Hundreds of different gods. And in one of, one of his letters, John, the Apostle John, writes in 1 John 5.21, he says, Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Again, I like the, the NLT translation here, because it says, Dear children, keep yourself away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. Keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. The reason the NLT translates it like this is because an idol can literally be anything. It can be anything that takes the place that God alone should have in our hearts. And we can end up worshipping those things over time. Fast forwarding to today, there are many parts of the world um, where they still have physical idols. Typically, there'll be things made of wood or precious metals or stone. And people still worship those physical idols in parts of the world today. What about us living here in a Western society? We tend not to have idols that are made of stone, precious metals and wood. But I suspect that our hearts are still no less prone to wandering than the Israelites were. There's plenty of things in our Western society that can take the place of God in our hearts. It's just that our idols are perhaps not quite as obvious as, as a physical idol a graven idol. I just want to read a story to you. It's, it's a, a recollection from a guy, um, Paul Tripp is his name. He's an American um, pastor and author. And he's describing ex an experience that he had when he visited India. It's a little bit of a long story, but I think it, it illustrates the point really well. So, so here we go. I was in northern India in one of the high holy cities of Hinduism. It was my first time ministering there, so I was on a four-day introduction tour of Hinduism. We had entered a temple that had the most horrific idol I had ever seen. I had no idea that things like this existed. It was a huge, maybe 20-foot high image of a male sexual organ. The Hindu pilgrims around me seemed emotional as they entered the temple. They seemed joyous, grateful that they were there. Many of them laid down flat on their stomachs before it. They kissed its base. It was one of the darkest spiritual scenes I have ever seen. 
Through our translator, we interviewed the members of a dirt-poor Indian family who had walked for months to get to this holy city, to this temple of darkness. The scene was so spiritually oppressive that all I wanted to do was get out of the building. I found myself trying to get through the busy streets to our vehicle, and as I did, I kept saying to myself, I thank God. I'm not like these people. I thank God I'm not like these people. Then it hit me. I am. No, my idols aren't the dark idols of formal religion. They're the subtle idols of my everyday world. They're things that claim the place in my heart that only God should have. And they are just as vomitous to my Lord as that idol was to me. At that moment, I confessed to the worship war that takes place in my heart every day. I cried out for the rescue that only the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ could provide. And I longed for the day when that war would finally be over. Worship is not something we do only in formal religious settings once a week. God designed us to be worshippers. Everything we do is the product of worship. We are always giving our hearts to something and if it's not God, it's something God created. All of this takes place in the little moments of our lives. And for that, we need moment by moment grace. So even here in the West, it's important for us to be aware of and to think about and to avoid idolatry. What are the things in your life that most captivate your heart? What or who has your heart for the majority of the week? Now, I know the right answer is, of course, we're a church full of Christ followers. We're going to say, God is the most important thing. He occupies my mind, my heart space for 99% of the week. But I want us to just take a moment to honestly reflect on what you spend most of your time thinking about. What do you spend your time mulling over, daydreaming about, talking to other people about? What do you spend most of your time and your energy and your resources on? What do you spend most of your money on? Our answers to those questions will be broad and they'll be varied. It could be your desire for money, a better car, a nicer house, more material possessions. It might be that those things captivate you constantly. It might be that you have a desire to be in a position where you have a little bit more power and control and influence. It might be your longing for, certain, for a certain kind of lifestyle or just to be a little bit more successful. Maybe you throw yourself so heavily and so much into your work that you don't have time for much else. Or perhaps at a more subtle level, it's the people in our lives, the people that we love our spouses, our children, our family, our friends. In essence, anything, anything in life that we put before God can become an idol. And it will often become an idol in our hearts and in our minds before it becomes an idol and translates into our behaviours and how we live life. Something I've felt a level of personal challenge on um, as I've been preparing today is um, just this hankering for what could have been, a hankering for what could have been. 
in my previous role before I became a pastor at Kerry, I was in a really good job. I was in a job that I loved. I was in a job that paid me really, really well. Gave me a sense of achievement and, and, a, and a, a level of satisfaction. And I was on course to become the most senior legal advisor at the company I was in. A company that was listed in, on the Australian Stock Exchange. It was a great company. I loved working at that place. Life was incredibly comfortable. We never had to worry about money. I didn't carry the same level of stress that I do now. Had my heart set on a particular type of future and retirement for Heather and myself. When I prayed through the call that I felt God put on my heart to become a pastor, one of the things that I had to struggle with at a very deep level, over a period of about nine months, I had to wrestle with leaving all of that behind. But sometimes I just have these moments where I find myself hankering for what could have been, hankering for an easier lifestyle, hankering for some of those creature comforts get, that came with that position that I had. And just this week, I, I felt God, God poke me in the heart and say, you know, the Israelites, when they left Egypt and they kept looking back and hankering for the pots of meat, they kept looking back. God had delivered them from slavery and bondage, but they kept hankering for the good old days. So I've been challenged myself as I've prepared this message today because that could so easily become an idol in my heart. Take my affection, take the time, take the energy, take the resources that I should be directing towards God because he alone is God and King. I think we, we each need to have an awareness of the things in our lives that, that might become or perhaps already are idols in our lives so we can see these things for what they are, so we can avoid them, so we can repent and turn away from those things that hold us captive. Because the thing about idols, they can be so incredibly subtle and yet over time they become increasingly more pervasive. They will start to steer the direction that we take in life and they will start to shape us into their image. Tragically, we see this playing out in the life of King Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 to 4, we read this. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord, his God, as his father David had been. Three times in those four verses, the writer tells us that Solomon's heart was turned away from God to the gods of the nations. This wasn't something that happened overnight. This was not something that, that kind of just fell into Solomon's lap. 
This was a process that took a long period of time, but over time, his heart did gradually shift. And in verse 4, we read tragically that he worshipped other gods. And these idols in Solomon's life, they changed the course of his life. They changed the course of his life. Because that's what idols do. And they can do the very same thing to us here today. There's a really great New Testament writer that I like. His name's Greg Beale. And he's written a book called We Become What We Worship. We Become What We Worship. And he traces the theme of worship throughout the Bible. And, and he, he demonstrates that we were created for worship. We are worshippers by nature. And he also shows that worship changes us. Worship changes us. At the heart of his book, he has this statement which encapsulates the essence of his book. And he says this, What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. So if we revere the world, then over time we'll be conformed into the sinful patterns of the world. But if we revere God, then over time... We're transformed into the likeness of God himself, transformed into the likeness of Christ. As we think about the question, the church, who are we? We're a community of people that's, that's deeply devoted to worshipping God. Deeply devoted to worshipping God. And as we worship him, committed to the transformation that takes place in our lives, committed to becoming more and more Christ-like in the process. So worship is a key mark, it's a central pillar of what it means for us to be the church. Another author, Philip Yancey, many of you may have read uh, Philip Yancey, he's, he's written so many great books, but, but he talks about, I'll read his quote, he talks about the church and worship, he summarizes it really well. He says this, church exists primarily not to provide entertainment, or to encourage vulnerability, or to build self-esteem, or to facilitate friendship, but to worship God. If it fails in that, it fails. And I think Philip Yancey is absolutely right. He's spot on the money with that summary of the church and worship. Worship is our most important calling in all of life. Many of the things that we do now, they'll just fall away. But the book of Revelation makes it so clear that we will be worshipping God for all eternity. We'll be worshipping God for all eternity. As the church, we're called, I think, to be a countercultural community, a community that is salt and a, and, a, and a community that is light, a community that does not value the things that the world values and so does not worship the things that the world worships. The world tempts us with an immeasurable number of idols that will try and direct, get us to direct our worship to them. They'll try and gain our allegiance and they'll try and rob our hearts. We need to resist them so that God alone is the one who receives our worship. How cool would it be if People looked at us as a church, as this countercultural community that is called to be salt and called to be light, and asked questions of us like this Why do you use your money for that? 
Why do you use your power and influence for that particular cause? Why are you committed to spending your energy on that particular thing? How amazing it would be if we lived this way as a whole community of Christ followers and people were attracted to us simply because of the way we live. And we live that way because of the one we worship. We live that way because we are being transformed into his image, into his likeness. We're going to come to a time of communion now. And I want to invite you, before you eat, before you drink, to just spend some time thinking about your own life. I want to invite you to spend some time thinking about maybe some of those things that have started to creep into your life and take your heart. Things that may over time become idols in your heart. And if God puts his finger on something for you, can I encourage you to repent and, and to turn away from that thing and to turn to Jesus and to give yourself wholly over to him. As we give up idols, as we give up those things that would seek to take our hearts, we actually we lose nothing, but we gain everything because God is so much better, so much better, so much richer than any idol we could possibly follow. He's so much greater. He's so much more life-giving. You know, the cross is a place of such incredible restoration. It's a place where we get to experience wholeness and life through Jesus' brokenness, through his death. We get to receive healing. We get to receive life that is abundant, love that is enduring, and hope that is tangible. Would you join me as we pray together? Father God, you alone are worthy to receive honour, praise and worship. Your name alone deserves to be lifted high, higher than any other name. This morning we give ourselves wholly to you. We give you our thoughts, our hearts, our lives, our homes, our families, our friendships. All that we are and everything that we have, we give to you. Help us to weed out those things in our hearts that seek to replace you. May you alone sit on the throne in our lives because you alone are king. You alone are creator of the universe. You alone are God. We thank you, Jesus, for the cross. As we eat this meal together, we ask that we would encounter Jesus afresh, that you would fill our hearts afresh with joy, joyful exuberance. We pray that you would bring healing to those in need of healing and restoration to those who are broken and hurting. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.